Uh, Daniel 6, page 630. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O king, Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next thirty days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next thirty days anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's, into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not, might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who were falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. 
Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations and men of every language throughout the land. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree, a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Good morning, everybody. Well, uh, as we come to consider God's word, let's bow in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you joined us together this morning around your word. Thank you that your word is uh, just so true, that it speaks so clearly and so um, profoundly about our situation in life today. We pray, Father God, as we uh, consider what uh, happened in the life of Daniel, so if you would be teaching us what your word is saying, you would teach us more about yourself and about your dealings with uh, men. Uh, most of all, Father, we pray that you would encourage us and challenge us to be people who put you first in our lives. And so uh, we come to you now, Lord God, praying for your spirit to take this word to uh, train our minds and uh, challenge our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dare to be a Daniel. It's a phrase which we commonly use when we want to encourage and challenge each other to, to put God first, to obey God, uh, even at the expense of obeying people who are in authority over us. Uh, it's a choice which we sometimes have to make, don't we? There are uh, dramatic circumstances whereby Christians in other parts of the world find that uh, they may sometimes be told by the authorities that they are prohibited from uh, worshipping true God, that they are prohibited from uh, gathering together as a church of believers, and that's particularly the case in uh, some uh, communist countries, like North Korea and so on. And it's also true in some Islamic countries. Uh, In Malaysia, where Kasi comes from, it is against the law to share the gospel with a Muslim. Uh, If you do so, you may find yourself in prison under a law called the Internal Securities Act, which was uh, interestingly established for terrorism. And uh, Christians in these situations uh, have to make a choice, don't they? Uh, Will they obey man or will they obey God? Now, for most of us here, the challenge for us is less dramatic than that, but it is nevertheless just as important. Because we live as citizens of heaven, but we live under the authority of people who are citizens of this world. And so because of that, we are bound to face issues, uh, to obey man or to obey God. Sometimes it's an issue that pops up at work, doesn't it? Uh, where uh, the boss uh, may require us to do something which we just think is wrong, uh, which we know is the opposite to what God would have us do. Uh, 
for example, and this is, I guess, uh, some stuff that brought back to me, uh, is that the cross may require us to act dishonestly. Uh, so it's kind of situations where uh, the, the, uh, the boss is sitting in the next room, uh, but he comes and says to you, if, uh, if Mr. Smith calls, I'm not available, I'm not in the office, I'm out somewhere. And you know it's not true, he's asking you to lie. Uh, or, uh, and I used to work in credit control, uh, where uh, people uh, tell the creditor that the, uh, post, that the payment is being processed, uh, when in fact it's not being processed at all, and you actually, the person is being required to say that to the creditor. Uh, or uh, when the boss tells you to charge the client for hours that you didn't spend working on his or her job. I remember on one occasion my boss actually instructed me to go and spy on a fellow employee, I was to wait, I was to wait outside this person's office, and I was to wait until he had left the building to go out to lunch or something, and when he was gone, I was to go into his office and I was to conduct a search, search through his private uh, uh, papers, search through his desk, and so on. Uh, who would have ever believed that you'd have espionage in the otherwise boring world of accountancy? Uh, now, young people face this same kind of issue at school. Uh, it's hard enough uh, uh, when you're at school just trying to fend off peer pressure, but uh, I've heard of cases where the Christian student has had to actually say no to the teacher uh, because they've been asked to participate in activities which they thought were the opposite to what God actually wants. Uh, and they've been required to, uh, to watch DVDs or videos uh, which they believe to be inappropriate and wrong in God's sight. To obey man or to obey God, that is sometimes a choice. And it was an issue which uh, Daniel constantly faced as he lived as a Jew in the Babylonian captivity. Now, Daniel would have been in his senior years uh, by the time that uh, King Darius uh, the Mede was uh, ruling over Babylon. But despite his age, Daniel never grew tired of putting God first and obeying God irrespective of whether that put him at odds with other people. He never grew tired of that and irrespective of what that might cost him personally. And this was an issue which played out most famously in the passage that is before us today. If you care to open up your Bibles at Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6 on page uh, 630, we catch a glimpse of what life was like for Daniel to live as a pilgrim in a pagan land. Now politics uh, is can be a dirty, grubby, slimy, business to be involved in. And we get a snapshot of Babylonian politics in verses 1 through to 5. As I said, the Medes and the Persians had conquered Babylon. King Darius, uh, who acted as sort of like a representative of King Cyrus of Persia, King Darius uh, reworked the government structure for Babylon and he established a new system of governments which involved the office of the satrap. Now, the word satrap comes from a Persian word. Uh, essentially, a satrap is like a regional ruler. 
uh, who had considerable power and authority. They actually had courts, uh, their own courts, uh, their own palaces, their own uh, judicial uh, situations and so on. And uh, he appointed 120 local satraps who answered to three other men, being Daniel and two others. And so what we see there is that Daniel was appointed as one of the three highest office bearers in the land under the king, which, uh, interestingly enough, was the kind of office that Belshazzar had promised him a couple of chapters earlier on. But in verse 3, King Darius made the decision to promote Daniel to become the leader of the whole kingdom under the king. And it was this decision which uh, flushed out the differences between Daniel and the other uh, administrators and satraps. Uh, Verse 3 tells us a bit about Daniel. Daniel had distinguished himself. Daniel was known for having exceptional qualities. And in that regard, we can say that Daniel was a faithful Babylonian. Jeremiah had uh, previously said that uh, in the letter to the exiles that when you live in this land in Babylon, you are not to be insurrectionists, but you are to be seeking the welfare of the city. And that is what Daniel had done. He was a faithful Babylonian. But he was also a faithful Jew. And when the other politicians heard that uh, Daniel had been tapped on the shoulder for the top job, they weren't all that pleased about that. And they conspired against him. Have a look at verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, why would they be wanting to... Uh, Find uh, what would they want to be wanting to bring him down? Why didn't they want Daniel to have this job? The passage doesn't tell us explicitly, but we can think about a few different possibilities here. First of all, it could have just been plain simple jealousy, and it wouldn't have mattered who had been tapping the job for the, on the shoulder for the top job. The others would have had the knives out to get that person. Uh, or secondly, uh, it may have been because of. Uh, the kind of governance that Daniel would have implemented. You see, corruption and graft was rife uh, in the ancient world and uh, it is most likely that these men, these satraps and the other administrators, would have been people who lined their own pockets and uh, it would not have served their purposes to have someone like Daniel uh, actually in charge of the whole thing because that would have made it more difficult for them to be corrupt. Or thirdly, they may have hated... Daniel, because he was not a Babylonian, uh, because he was one of God's people. Now, he was known as one of God's people. They knew that he was a man who prayed three times a day. They knew that. And uh, if you have a look at verse 13, uh, when they went to go and dog him into the king, uh, how did they refer to him, to the king? Did they say, king, you know Daniel, who was your prime minister designate? Is that how they referred to him? What did they say? They said, no, they said, King, you know Daniel who is one of the uh, one of the Jewish exiles, one of the exiles from Judah. Now, that was a put-down. 
that was a put down. They were not giving him the uh, the respect that was due to him, and they were saying he's just one of those Jews, just one of those exiles. You see, by believing and by living his faith, Daniel had made for himself some powerful enemies, and they wanted to bring him down. In verse four. Uh, they wanted to find anything that they could accuse him of, but uh, to be frank, these guys could have dug a hole all the way through the planet and they would not have found any dirt uh, on Daniel. Uh, I was uh, interested uh, years ago to read about a Christian politician who, had, um, uh, who was retiring from politics. Uh, he'd been in his parliament for a couple of decades and uh, uh, there was a newspaper uh, article about him in his retirement where they said that uh, uh, he had made many enemies in Parliament uh, because of his Christian views, because he stood up against certain things. He had made enemies amongst the other politicians. He had made enemies amongst the liberal, uh, the socially liberal media. But uh, this article said that uh, for decades people had been finding, his enemies had been trying to find dirt on him, some kind of sexual scandal or a financial scandal, but it was a completely fruitless exercise because the dirt simply did not exist. And uh, when he retired from Parliament, the speeches in Parliament, people who were saying, well, you've actually acted integrity for the decades, you've actually acknowledged that. Now, Daniel was a man like that particular politician. He was a good Babylonian. But first and foremost, he was a good Jew. You and I need to be like that. Heaven is our Jerusalem, and this world, Port Macquarie, New South Wales, Australia, is our Babylon. I wonder if you might turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment, a passage that uh, you're already familiar with by now. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, and you'll find it on page 858. Uh, picking it up at verse 11, uh, Peter, having addressed uh, the uh, uh, Christians who were living uh, all throughout the, uh, the Gentile world, living as God's chosen people, uh, and uh, he talks to them about how he's called them, God has called them out of darkness and into the glorious light of the gospel. And in verse 11 he says, this is his exhortation to them. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, just like Daniel was, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, what is it saying there? Uh, it's saying that as Christians we ought to be living such holy lives that uh, if people want to throw mud at us, they're going to fabricate. They're going to have to tell lies about us in order to accuse us. Much as what was done to the Lord Jesus himself in his trial, they're going to have to fabricate accusations, no false accusations. But we should not be people for whom it is impossible to actually come up with true donations. We're to live such different lives that uh, we are going to be not like the world around us. Now, um, Daniel was like that, and so they had to resort to a dirty tricks campaign to trap him. The only way that they could do that 
was to put Daniel in a situation whereby he had to choose between obeying man or obeying the king and obeying God. And such was his reputation that they knew that if Daniel was put in that situation that he was going to obey God and disobey the king. And so it was a foolproof trap that they could come up with against him. They used his godliness against him. And so in verses 6 to 9, they spring the trap. They want the king to issue a law which would result in Daniel becoming a criminal and being sentenced to death. Now notice how they manipulated the king. First of all, they stroked the king's ego. You see in verse 6, they they refer to the king in verse 6, they say uh, to him, O King Darius, live forever. They're buttering the guy up. And then in verse 7, they propose that the king makes it illegal for anyone to pray to any man or any god for 30 days except to the king. They're stroking his ego. They're saying, no, Darius, you are at the centre of our lives. You are at the centre of our worship. Nobody else is. They're stroking the man's ego. But secondly, secondly, they aroused his insecurity and they played on his insecurity. Uh, notice that it was two administrators and 120 satraps who came to the king, but when they came to him, what did they say? They say, well, we agree with this, but also we've gone around and we've talked to all of the prefects, to all of the advisors, and to all of the governors, and guess what? They all agree with us as well. Now, no leader wants to be in a situation where he's offside with the whole of his, of his team. And this is what these people are doing. They're saying, basically, they're, they're implying to him that if you don't do this, then you're going to have the whole team offside. Notice that uh, there was only two administrators there. Daniel was missing, and uh, Darius would later on find out why Daniel wasn't there. Now, thirdly, in verse 8, They abused law and order. You see, the Medes and the Persians had a um, uh, a governance system whereby they believed that uh, good government, the secret of all good and healthy government, uh, was to have laws which were very clear and which had very clear punishments. And when a law was broken, that the same punishment would be meted out against the offender irrespective of whatever the circumstances were and irrespective of, of, of who the offender was, whether they were a, a lowly person or a high person. More than that, in the law in the, the Medes and the Persians, there was no appeals. It was quick, efficient justice. There was no appeals, there was no exceptions, not even friends of the king. And once a law was made in writing, the king could not even change the law. Although, uh, I might add, that um, uh, when a king got himself into a particular sticky situation, what he could do is to issue a counter-edict. It's not clear as to why Darius doesn't issue a counter-edict in the midst of the Daniel situation, but notice that he does right at the end when he, said, he issues an edict saying that everybody must actually worship the God of Daniel. So it was that, that was the kind of system 
it was a system which worked for them in terms of giving them good law and order. And the great irony is that Daniel, who is the man who represented good law and order, was the one who was falling victim to this particular system. But it's the reason why in verse 8 that the men insisted to uh, Darius that the law be issued in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, indeed, in verse 15, after Daniel had been trapped, they reminded the king of that very fact. They're basically saying, King, we've got you. You are in no position to change what has happened. That's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, how did Daniel react to all of this? He could have reacted in a number of different ways, couldn't he? He could have lost his nerve. He could have decided, well, I'm just going to put aside praying to God for a month. I'm not going to bother talking to my Lord and my Creator, my Heavenly Father, for one month. He could have done that. Wouldn't that have been terrible? Can you imagine not talking to your Heavenly Father for a month? Can you imagine not uh, casting upon Him your cares and your worries, your concerns, your anxieties for a period of 30 days? Can you imagine not speaking and not relating with God for a month? Wouldn't that be terrible? That would be devastating. So I'm going to ask you, how's your prayer life been? How long has it been since you talked to God? So for some of us, it's uh, not inconceivable that we could actually go for months without actually having first prayer times. I encourage you. Dan, you know, they couldn't stop Daniel from praying for a month later and implementing a war with punishable by death. And yet sometimes we just say, well, as I encourage you to be happy in your prayer life. He could have done that. Or he could have decided that he's just going to pray secretly from now on. Uh, and indeed, uh, we might be able to, in his situations, we might have been able to justify that. We might be able to say, well, Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says, don't be like the kids who like to pray openly so everyone can see him on public display. But when you pray, uh, go into your room, close the door, and pray secretly uh, to your Heavenly Father, who hears what he's praying in secret. Uh, Daniel, I said, I'm just going to pray secretly. But it's not the same situation that's being addressed, is it? Jesus is actually uh, addressing a situation of people who love to be honoured by men by their prayers. The, the whole situation of hypocrisy. One commentator I read put it this way, and I quote, he said, when prayer becomes fashionable, praying in secret may be a good thing. But when prayer is prohibited, to pray in secret might actually be a cowardice. Daniel held his nerve. Only the first ten. Now, when Daniel learnt that the decree had been published, he went home to his upper room, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Like he's saying, "I am not going to adjust my prayer life because of the edict of the king." Now, why did Daniel uh, pray at his upstairs window? Why was he his habit to do that? Let me tell you, it was not because he just wanted to make a public act of defiance. Uh, it was not because he wanted people to see him, uh, nor was he a hypocrite. He wanted to look towards the city of Jerusalem for a reason. 
which of all is in Daniel chapter 6 and come with me back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 which is the, uh, the the dedication of the temple by Solomon 1 Kings chapter 8 and uh, you find that on our page um, say 232. I want to pick it up at verse 36. 234. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 36. Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And he prays to God saying, of his people of Israel. He says, When they sin, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy, who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies, and happy, and pray to, to you toward the land you gave your fathers, toward the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you, forgive all the offences they have committed against you, and cause their conquerors to show their mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the wine-smelling furnace. Now, you see in that that there is a reason why Daniel went upstairs to his open window that faced towards Jerusalem. Uh, We see that Solomon, in praying that prayer, was looking towards a time in the future where the rebellion of God's people who meant that they would be punished by an alien enemy land. They would be taken into exile and he's saying to God that if they are repentant, if it is their desire to be back in your land, and if they pray towards Jerusalem, to pray towards this, to the temple that you have built, then forgive them and restore them to their land. See, Daniel prayed facing Jerusalem because of that passage. And it shows us something about where his heart was. He was one of the he was one of the supreme leaders of the nation of Babylon, pagan land, but his heart was for God. His heart was for his home Jerusalem. His heart was to pray to God, to uh, plead with God for mercy, so that his people would be restored uh, to their land. Now you and I may be Australians, but all of us here are Australians. Whatever nationality we are, we are first of all Christians. We are members of God's kingdom, a kingdom that, in, that uh, transgresses, that uh, crosses over all political, and cultural, and racial, and language barriers. Uh, we are people for whom heaven is our home. Heaven is the place that we ought to be longing to be uh, with God. And for that time when we will be seated in the throne room of God with ten thousands upon ten thousands worshipping the Lamb, praising Him forever and ever. And so it's worth, worth asking the question, are we like Daniel passionate 
God's kingdom. So what we pray for, are we longing for the spread of the gospel? Are we longing that more and more people would enter into God's kingdom? And are we passionate to pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we looking forward to our home where we will praise God for Daniel chose to disobey the king rather than to be unfaithful to God. And sometimes we may have to do the same. Um, there's an important principle here. In Romans chapter 13 verse 1, we are instructed that because God is the one who has placed people in authority over us, that we are to obey the earthly authorities. There are rightful authorities. And as we uh, search the scriptures, we see that uh, God uh, provides an ordering in our, in our relationships so that there are rightful authorities in families. A husband is to lead his family. There are rightful authorities in our society. We have governments that are appointed. There are rightful authorities in our workplaces. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians and Colossians it slaves are to obey their earthly masters. It's not only when their eyes on them, even when their eyes not on them. And there are rightful authorities in the church. The God calls elders in the church to lead the church. But the principle is that God is the highest authority. So in any case, will someone in authority over us demands that we act in a way that is disobedient to God for that matter, even in the case of the church, that we believe things which are contrary to the word of God, then we are to obey the highest authority. And uh, we see this, friends, uh, played out in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, when the apostles were brought before the authorities, religious authorities, and they were warned to stop preaching the gospel. Now, you may remember what their response was. Basically, they said, thanks for the advice, We've got a question for you. Who should we obey? Should we obey you or should we obey God? So I told you the question. And when we obey God, we must be prepared to hand over to God the consequences of disobeying the earthly authorities. Now, what were those consequences for Daniel? Well, in Daniel's case, God rescued him. In verse 16, you know the story. Anyone who's been to Sunday school knows the story that uh, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. But let me say, this is not some cute story. Uh, this would have been a savage and a terrifying way for Daniel or any person to die. And how do you want it? I can imagine Daniel at the you know, at the gate of that uh, lion's den, actually feeling a bit uncomfortable. Even if it's like you know, being thrown into a pool full of sharks or something like that, it's very fine. This is a gruesome punishment to be meted out. And the king, because of the law of the Medes and Persians, was powerless. He felt powerless to do anything about it. Although, as it turned out, Daniel actually spent a far more comfortable night uh, in the stinking lion in Darius' sleep 
in the luxury of his palace. Whilst Darius was so distressed, so concerned about what was happening that he couldn't eat, he refused entertainment and he couldn't sleep that night. Well, Daniel had a good night's sleep because God shut the mouths of those lions. And in an extraordinary miracle, God spared Daniel's life. But let me say that it doesn't always work out that way, does it? It's not always God's plan uh, to spare his people in that way. You've only got to look at the apostles themselves. How did the apostles die? Was it through old age? No. The majority of the apostles were actually killed because they stood up for the truth of Jesus. They were not rescued in the same sense that Daniel was. When we choose to obey God rather than man, uh, it shouldn't be because we expect that God will always rescue us. Uh, when you say no to your boss who wants you to tell the lie, to afford the quiet, you may actually lose your job. Uh, as a number of Christians I know have lost their jobs for reasons like that. Well, what about if you think from the national level? If our government was to prohibit Christians from publicly speaking against certain issues, such as homosexuality or um, Islam, um, what would be the consequences then? Now, note that there are laws in the state of Virginia that have actually had this effect. Uh, and there are actually uh, laws being discussed at the federal level at the moment, uh, which would actually have a similar effect. And one of our congregation members has made a submission into that discussion. If that were the case, some of us uh, would need to be prepared to face court uh, rather than with our mouths shut. And uh, that, in fact, is what we declare in regards to um, Islam. Now, as we finish, uh, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, if you go over to Hebrews chapter this is this great passage about uh, the uh, great people of faith, people of great faith in the Old Testament. Find it on page 851. Have a look at uh, how this starts off in verse 1. Uh, with this definition of what faith actually is, uh, where the author to the Hebrews says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. See that saying? Saying we're sure of the hope we have. And the hope we have we have it because God has made promises. We're sure of the promises of God, even though we haven't seen that in the first place yet. And then he goes on to, uh, to, to give this long list of uh, men and women who have acted obediently towards God, in some cases when that meant putting them right offside with the worldly authorities. 
Uh, if you go down to verse uh, 33, just pick it up there for me. Uh, it talks about these uh, people, in this case, it's the uh, starts off with the judges and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was, what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. So there he's saying, here were some people who acted faithfully to God, and they actually did get uh, rescued by God, and they did get the victory right there and then. But then he talks about others. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of him. You see, in that, and then in verse 38, it says God had planned something better for us and only together with us may be made we've seen that that sometimes people acting putting God's first did not die and Daniel and his three friends are actually singled out it says the fire was quenched the mouth of the lions was shut but often people did die they knew that there was no guarantee against suffering or death. But they trusted God and they obeyed God because they trusted in what had been promised. And what had been promised? Verse 35, a better resurrection. A better home. Now, hundreds of years later, uh, after the Persians had long, long gone, and the Greeks had come and gone, and Rome ruled supreme, during the time of the Roman Empire, there was a period of great persecution against God's people. And it was common for the followers of Jesus to be fed alive to life. Persecution suffered and the parable suffered and died. They were mauled to death. Of course, they chose to obey God, not me. They chose to say that whilst Christianity is a legal religion, that whilst you may say to us that we need to bow down and worship Caesar, we bow down and worship our own wonder. Sons of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, life or death is not an issue for them. In fact, the early Christians actually loved artwork of Daniel being released from the lion's den. 
In the walls, there were buildings of bedrooms and the catacombs in Rome. You will see pictures and frescoes of Daniel being released in the lion's den. Unlike the who knew what it was to be their friends, their brothers and sisters, their demands. But then, Daniel, being rescued from the lion's den, was in incredible situation. But not because they expected they would walk out of the Colosseum alone. But rather, because they saw in how God acted in the life of them, something which was pointing forward to the resurrection of Jesus in the world. In Daniel, by being put into the, into the, into the den of the lions, the law of the Medes and Persians was satisfied. But God brought nothing to it. By Jesus going to the cross, the demands of the law of God were satisfied. They were And God brought him from the depths of the grave to resurrection. And the early Christians saw in the life of Daniel and his and rescued from the lion's den. The picture not only of our Lord Jesus Christ being risen from the dead, but rather a picture of the resurrection to eternal life of all who obey God rather than obey man, for all who dare to be of man. Father, we thank you for uh, your work in history, in the uh, life of Daniel. Thank you that he was a man of great integrity, uh, a man uh, whom they could find no burden on. And we pray for ourselves, Lord God, that we would be men and women of such uh, godliness, such uh, truthfulness and integrity, that uh, as we live in a non Christian world, that uh, though people might accuse us of doing those accusations will not be false. And uh, others around could see our victories. And uh, like Darius saw such a goodness in, in Daniel, that uh, they would praise you what they see your work in our lives. Father, we pray for each of our situations in work, in schools, in all the different ways in which we interact with our world. And that in those situations we might be facing whereby we are actually asked to participate in you. So we would have such a view of our heavenly home we would say no. We would seek your kingdom first and your righteousness. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.